I'm Mike Sheridan, and this is The Bell. Hey folks, you're very welcome back to another episode of The Delve with me, Mike Sheridan. Brought to you by our pals at Spotlight Oral Care. If you use the code DELVE25, you'll get 25% off everything at checkout. We'll put the website below there so you know where to go. Um, so we're three episodes in now, although we have recorded other ones that just haven't gone out yet. We recorded some in May, um, some in pretty early on in May as well in the middle of the pandemic. So there's a whole lot of content coming out over 10 episodes this season. But as I said, our third guest is Amanda Knox. And this was a really lovely conversation because I feel as an interviewer, as somebody who kind of identifies himself as a facilitator, I suppose, more than anything else, the less I talk, the better. When I'm talking to somebody and I'm interviewing somebody and I want to find out about them, the more they talk, the better a job I feel like I'm doing. And I tried to do that here, especially with Amanda Knox, because she had so much to say. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of the case. Everybody knows it already. Um, Amanda hosts a podcast now called the truth about true crime podcast and uh, she's kind of has a setup with her husband in seattle where they uh, talk about where they talk about famous cases and look try and look at them from a different perspective so i'm not going to say much more it's a really fascinating chat and talking about the frustrations of being accused of something that you didn't do but still managing to have empathy for the person who's trying to put you away forever so I don't want to say any more. Just uh, enjoy this really interesting chat with Amanda Knox. But are you are you still up in Washington? You're up by you're from Seattle, right? But you're yeah, in- yeah. So um, I grew up in I grew up in Seattle, and I'm still. Um, I mean, I guess I'm not technically in Seattle city limits anymore, but I'm still in the same county. Um, I live 20 minutes away from where I grew up. My whole family um, is you know, West Seattle was kind of the small town that I grew up in where we all were in within a jog from each other. And so it's, I like that. And I, I'm used to that. I get like the benefits of a small town in a big city, just because we all happen to be grouped together and definitely a part of each other's lives a lot. Oh, and by the way, if you hear weird sounds in the background, um, it's because I have a kitten. Uh, She's a new member of the house. Old. Yeah, you know what? I'll just grab her. Yeah, bring her, bring her. What's her name? Her name is Pan for pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay. And she's very playful right oh, now. So she's so, she's, cute. Um, she's so sweet. And she's like really just become a favorite of one of the other kitties we have, her big brother, Mr. Fats. So I'm just going to let her kind of roam around. Um, That's and cool, don't worry. <laughs> so how, you mentioned a the podcast there. How, how's the podcast going? You produce a true crime podcast, right? You produce a yes. series. So that's one of the things that you've been doing for the past few years. So where did mm-hmm. that come from and, and what exactly is it? You know, I, it's funny. I had no idea that I would ever get into podcasting, which I think is probably what a lot of podcasters say. Um, and what I was doing before that was, um, I was just finishing up a season of the Scarlet Letter Reports, which I had been doing in collaboration with Vice and Facebook Watch. That was like my first big, um, 
entrance into a big project that was a, a journalism project about something that I, an issue that I deeply care about, public vilification, particularly sexist public vilification. Um, and then very randomly, this production company reached out to me and said, hey, um, we're looking to talk about this really complex, famous um, true crime story and we need a host and we need a host like in three days can you be our host <laughs> and i was like ah so i i what i did was i agreed and then i spent the next three or four days however long it was it really wasn't more than four days trying to inform myself as much as possible about what i was being asked to talk about um because i really really after everything I've been through, uh, believe that one should do as much homework as one possibly can before spouting your mouth off. <laughs> and um, so, you know, that's what I did. And that first season came out well. Um, they asked me to continue on with a second season. Interestingly, the second season, they had already recorded all of the interviews. So what they asked me to do was structure and write the podcast and, and craft a narrative around the interviews that they had already done. And then so over time, the podcast has become more and more of my and my husband's creation. We've had more of a hand in um, the production and the scope and the writing um, so it's, it's, um, I think it's probably similar with you where it's like, suddenly you're the boss and I'm technically not the <laughs> boss boss. It's your baby um, though, right? It's, your it's baby. my baby. Yeah. And I really, really care about trying to offer a perspective to the true crime genre that I don't often see. So, uh, that's, that's what I'm constantly working really hard at, um, also on top of doing the podcast, I, um, me and my partner do a bunch of written journalism. We're regular um, contributors to this um, online publication called crimestory.com, um, where we do tons of interviews with people who are either indirectly impacted by the criminal justice system in the sense that they research it and or they're lawyers or activists who are working with people who have been impacted or just talking to people who are directly impacted. I'm really interested in trying to talk to formerly and currently incarcerated people um, because I think that there's this vast gap in understanding what incarceration means and what it feels like and what it does to a person if you've never actually been through it yourself. Um, I certainly know that before it happened to me, I never thought about what it must be like to be in prison. That was not something I concerned myself with because I thought bad people go to prison. That's just where they go. And I don't have to deal with them then. Um, and indeed, you know, I grew up very privileged and in relative safety because I wasn't facing crime in my neighborhood. It was just so so distant. It was like a distant other people problem. And it wasn't until I was particularly vulnerable in a foreign country, I was other, that I was targeted and I suffered the consequences of, you know, prosecutorial misconduct and tunnel vision and all of the problems that 
happened that can make a wrongful conviction occur. It was only then that I spent time in prison and really got to see what the population of a prison is constituted of. And of course, this was in Italy, so it's not exactly the same as in the United States, but like it all comes back to the same thing is like, who are these people who, yes, have made mistakes and yes, sometimes have done horrible crimes, but like what position were they in in the first place that led them to prison? And how are we all, how are all we all implicated in? how crime is a part of our society. Acting like it's an other people problem doesn't acknowledge that we are all part of a system and we are all reactions to each other. And I think that, you know, it's so, so easy to just dismiss and vilify human beings and define them by their worst actions. And we do it all the time and we do it to this day. And it's, I don't know, it's having been suddenly put through that situation and, and being shocked into an awareness of that, I now see it everywhere around me. And I'm always, always, always trying to do my best to not necessarily call it out, but to offer a different perspective. There's another way of looking at these social ills that doesn't require us to just bald-faced, you know, broadly vilify other human beings that we don't understand so you know anyway i think i think it's fascinating how you know some people are very quick to judge especially on social media although i know you were saying people were actually really kind to you and uh, more recently on social media which is which is really great to hear but i think everybody's been accused of something that they didn't do and i mean i have just like everybody has to some degree and um, obviously there's different levels of seriousness but how do you even like it's almost like it's it's such a layered it's such a layer cake of you know intensity and you know because obviously then you're dealing with the language barrier barrier you're dealing with everything else like obviously watching the netflix series a couple of years ago and listening to interviews that you've done from the past few days and, and the book and everything else i can't imagine what you were going through and what was going through your head like what was your coping mechanism was it this is going to be over soon. They're just going to know it's, you know, and you know, what kind of advice can you, can you then pass on from people from that experience? Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my coping mechanisms, like all, like, like all human beings, human beings change over time. And so have my coping mechanisms, very honestly, me at 20 years old um, was a very different person than me today. And I mean that in the sense that back when I was 20, I didn't have any kind of coping mechanisms for the kind of trauma that I was subjected to very, very suddenly. So I, the only thing that I knew how to do was call my mom <laughs> and and hope that someone, some authority had all of this under control because I certainly didn't feel like I understood what was happening and, and who to be scared of and where to go and what to do. I was, as a 20-year-old, looking to authority figures to tell me what to do and tell me how to feel. That's what you're and used to, right? You're used to that. The adults in the room were barely an adult. Yeah. 
Of course. Yeah. I mean, I was a kid and like kids are looking to those figures to give them guidance about how they're supposed to not, not only what they're supposed to do, but what they're supposed to think and feel because these are complex. Like when you're, when you're exposed to something dramatic and traumatic, you don't just feel one emotion. There's a reason why there are so many layers of grief and shock. And, you know, so I was experiencing all of those things. And as my first way of dealing with imprisonment and wrongful accusation and, you know, the tremendous scrutiny and and suddenly being around people who were suffering from mental illness and just being trapped in a cage. Like there were so many things that like suddenly they happened to me um, that once again, I was looking to my mom and my mom was telling me it's going to be okay. I don't know how it's going to be okay, but it's going to be okay. And I believed her. I believed that there was this light that was going to be at the end of the tunnel um, and that someone who had agency and, and actual influence in the situation, because I certainly felt like I had zero agency um, and influence in the situation, was going to fix it. And I spent two years in prison believing that. And it wasn't until I was convicted um, that I had to grapple with the existential crisis of realizing that, no, things just don't work out. You know, there's no guarantee that some injustice in your life is going to be righted. And I had to... I mean, I, I lived the next two years... <laughs> with the constant thought that I have to make the best life I can out of what has been given to me. I can't wait for the life that I should have. I need to take what I have, which is unfair and which is horrible and which is full of traumas every day. I have to take that and try to make it worth living. And it really was a very like simplified existence because for me, it was so hard that it was just about today. Today is the day that I have to get through. I'll think about tomorrow, tomorrow, but today is the challenge and today has to be worth living. So what am I going to do? Now, that was my process of living through an imprisonment and it is it haunts me to this day that there are people who spend their entire lives living that same day over and over and over again. Um, I was in prison for four years in the United States. I don't know what the sentencing laws are like in Ireland, but in the United States, sentencing laws are so inhumane. Um, and they're entirely derived from moral panic. And there's, they're not based in any kind of evidence about how it creates a positive outcome for the individual who is going through it. It's, it's largely based on revenge and punitiveness and, um, uh, and the throwing away of a human life. 
And so that's something that I think about constantly. Um, but then, you know, coming out of prison, you know, it doesn't, just because it worked out for me doesn't mean that I suddenly thought, oh, things really do just work out okay. Like I understood that it was, you know, by the grace of something that like I got out of a situation that most people don't escape from. Lots of unfair things happen to people. And, you know, one thing that also continues to haunt me to this day is I could have died too, right? Like. Meredith and I were not different. We lived in the same house. We were about the same age. The only reason I wasn't there that night was because I had just met this new guy and I was hanging out with him all the time. And so it's really a fluke that I wasn't home that night and that I wasn't murdered too. So I'm experiencing crime from both sides of being that close to being a murder victim and knowing someone who was a murder victim, and also having lived for years in a community of people who had committed crimes, and seeing how their backgrounds and their mental illness and their addiction and their traumas informed their actions. It's, it's a lot to think about, and none of it is fair. And there's no guarantee that it's ever going to work out for anyone. And so coping with that. It's an ongoing process, I would imagine. It just has to be, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, you talked about how you've been accused of things that you didn't do. And, you know, like, also, we've all done things, too. And we have to live with things that we've done. And, and, and to be constantly defined by others by by the ugliness that is part of humanity is tragic um it also comes down to accountability and really thinking deeply about how we impact other people and how we can impact people for the better and for the worse um you know i think that the united states is definitely in this moment right now i don't know if you've been following what's going on in the us course um you know of course like just like the rest of the world we're in the midst of a pandemic which is affecting you know our our economics are totally up in the air who knows what's going to happen we also happen to be in an election year for a presidential election so also we have a bunch of political turmoil but on top of all of that we have a huge social upheaval which has resulted from yet again unarmed black men who are murdered by our law enforcement in plain view as if it's no issue whatsoever. And suddenly there is this huge acknowledgement that this is not just a black people problem. This is an everyone problem. And we all have a role to play with how it went wrong and how it can go right. Um, which all derives from accountability and understanding that we are all interconnected. Um, what I hope is that people remember that it's complicated. Um, I'm always, always very, I feel a lot of dread when things are oversimplified, um, when people think that there are easy answers and when people stop thinking. Um, 
you know, I think it was very easy to wrongly convict me because people stopped thinking. And so I'm always wary of any impulse to act without thinking first. Um, that said, like, you know, you, you, can, you can't just sit around thinking about something and, and until the end of time, especially when there's urgency, right? Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to briefly tell you about our sponsor for this season of The Delve, Spotlight Oral Care, which is an Irish company founded by two Irish dentists. Uh, they're a sustainable company, they're an ethical company. So long story short about me and my teeth, I had my teeth straightened a couple of years ago. It made me hyper aware of oral care in general. Spotlight Oral Care really recognized that and do products specific for people. And um, so I've been using their men's teeth whitening strips for a couple of weeks now. I've found it fantastic. I've also been using, which is the which is the crown and the jewel for me, uh, the Sonic Toothbrush, which is just a phenomenal product. It's got three different settings and it's got a two minute timer. So you're, you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes. I'm using their uh, sensitive toothpaste and you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes and it just switches off. You're like, okay, I've brushed my teeth for the sufficient amount of time. They've also given us a discount code of DELVE25. So if you use the code DELVE25, you'll get 25% off any Spotlight Oral Care products on their site. Back to the show. I, I'm sorry. I'm totally just babbling and like processing. <laughs> I'm the facilitator here. I'm listening to you. Um, Oh. I think it's you spoke before as well about confirmation bias because police, you know, the police here certainly in Ireland, I can't speak for the US, but the police here I'm sure do their best, you know, where on a case-to-case basis, on a person-to-person basis, people are different. But there is that element of confirmation bias, I think particularly in the case that you were horrifically involved with, and also in something like the Madeleine McCann case, which is another horrific case where all of a sudden there's this massive focus on this small town that's reliant on tourism and the cops are like, they just need to, you know, I'm not, I don't want to speak for anybody, but they're, they're looking for something to just make it go away basically. Yeah. I think one thing that, and I love that you put it this way. Um, one thing that I genuinely think is true about the vast majority of people is that even when they are making mistakes and even when they're doing bad things, they think they're they're doing the best they can, right, based on their understanding. And I think a lot of people have flawed understandings. I think a lot of people have, um, you know, when I think about my prosecutor, I don't think about my prosecutor as an evil man. I think of him as a man who has been motivated by a series of pressures within a certain environment who is coming into that situation with a number of biases and cultural cues. Um, I'm trying to understand how all of those things play and work together to make a man think that he's doing the right thing when it's not. And I think that that's something that's at play here in the U.S., um, you know, I've been doing a lot. I, again, I believe in doing your homework <laughs> and I've been doing, instead of like spending a lot of time talking about, or, um, you know, I haven't been like spreading the memes or, you know, retweeting the things I've been doing a lot of 
thinking, processing, researching, outreach. I've been trying to talk to a lot of people who know better than me what's going on um, because as much as I understand what it's like to be, you know, persecuted wrongfully and imprisoned and judged and misjudged based on false information and also blamed for what happened to me. I can't say that I understand, you know, the experience of Black Americans in this country. What I can say is, based on what I've experienced, I know that what's happening is a true human response to a true human problem. And it's something that I want to understand better. Um, and that said, like, I'm trying to sort of thread this needle of doing what I always do, which is resisting the urge to place blame on broad swaths of people or to blame, to blame societal ills on evil, right? Like this idea of evil, whatever the name we give that evil. Um, I want to understand how human beings can think they're doing the right thing when they're doing the wrong thing. Um, which requires a lot more work, a lot of more mental work and a lot more empathy work. Yeah, I was just going to say, that is a deep level of empathy, particularly when you're looking at the prosecutor and kind of understanding where, where he is coming from. Like, mm -hmm. Because I, 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 I would love to think I would be like that. I, I can't imagine I would be. Is that something you, you had to work on, obviously? You, you say you just want to educate yourself. But something like that's that's human nature, surely where you can put yourself in somebody else's position and see where they're coming from. Obviously, that's a very specific situation. but Yeah, well, I mean, the reason why that is something I'm so, so strictly drawn to, that approach, is because I was never comforted by the idea that, you know, I've had supporters of mine say, your prosecutor was an evil man. He did this to you because he was evil. And that never struck me as like an answer that was satisfying because there's no way that I can respond to that. If, you know, people are just evil and do things because they're evil, then, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm just helpless to, you know, I'm a victim of someone else's evilness. And I felt like there must be a reason why. And the reason in sort of, thinking that there must be a reason why required me to put aside how bad things were and just try to trace how, like follow the breadcrumbs of, of logic and illogic that a human being naturally can follow in order to arrive at a conclusion. And the same thing can be done, you know, here looking at these bigger, broader issues in the U.S. is I've been looking a lot about how, or lo looking a lot into how policing has changed um, in this country. How, um, you know, there's, there's many who make the argument that it's been corrupt in the same way since the very beginning of the, our country. And I think that there are valid arguments to that. I've also been looking into, however, how at a certain point in our history, we consolidated our police forces consolidated. So um, instead of there being sort of 
individualized communities that had their own law enforcement that was in response to the community's needs and, and law enforcement was viewed as a sort of um, welfare service for society um, that would respond to not just like violent crimes or, or traffic stops, but would, you know, talk to the person who was about to jump off the bridge because they were in a really bad situation or, you know, would help find the lost kid. Um, these were the ideas that we thought like, oh, what do we go to the police for and why? And as our country consolidated police and basically militarized them and started just criminalizing every possible human thing, um, it became a sort of us versus them mentality. And I think that that has just become worse and worse and worse as, as police officers were sort of personally removed from the communities they served. And that aggravated, aggravated already horrible, you know, racist problems that existed in our country since forever. Well, they're not All coming from things. an informed place. Sorry for interrupting you, but they're not coming from an informed place if they're not in the neighborhoods, they don't know the people. You yeah. know, and maybe on a bigger scale now, that's obviously, that's obviously difficult. Like we, I'd be, I don't know if you know David Rudolph, who was the, he's a lawyer, he was in, um, well, he's a civil rights attorney, he had been for a very, very long time, but he became famous a couple of years ago and a few years back again for the Staircase documentary on Netflix. Oh, David sure. Was, yeah, he's a civil rights attorney. And I, I, I did a tour with David here in Ireland. And so we spent a couple of weeks with him. It was surreal spending a couple of weeks, you know, because somebody you kind of revere on TV and then you're sitting in the back of a really crappy car going through County Cork at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> trying to drop him to his hotel. But my point being that, like every night, me, myself and David would have a conversation in front of an audience. And the one thing it would always seem to come back to, well, I suppose two things it would come back to, in that case in particular, but he would talk about other cases as well, would be the, what he called junk science and then almost the communication between these different, these different people in the police departments. Like a lot of the time, people just aren't trained properly or people are put in positions, like anything in life, are put in positions that they should not be in. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's just dire consequences with something like this. Mm -hmm. There's also like, you have to look at um, incentive structures. So um, there's this really excellent researcher named Etail Drawer, who specifically looks at how forensic scientists can be um, biased. And you know, there, there are incentive structures that create bias for forensic experts because again, they're human. And so they can be influenced by certain structures to make certain choices that they wouldn't make in different situations. So for instance, you know, he showed that if a forensic expert is told before he looks at, you know, say he's a forensic expert in um, fingerprints, right? If that forensic expert is told ahead of time that the person, the suspect has confessed, he is more likely to say that this fingerprint is a match. Whereas if he's not told if the suspect confessed or not, he will actually feel less confident and, and say less and be less conclusive about whether or not fingerprints match. And so you have to ask yourself, like, why would that piece of information, whether or not a suspect confessed, influence a very technical 
irrelevant data point, which is whether or not this fingerprint matches. And of course, the reason is because we're human, <laughs> like, and we're easily biased. And so how can we create structures that acknowledge how bias works in order to sort of nip it in the bud whenever possible? And that's a continuing ongoing learning process. But yeah, junk science, <sighs> Junk science is, is hard um, because I know that there have been whole, think of bite mark evidence, whole, you know, studies, experts who are experts in bite mark evidence that all ultimately came down to nothing. Like it was a whole science that was based on, that was only allowed to exist because of confirmation bias. And because the only time that it was applicable was in trying to find people guilty. And then once the person is found guilty, it, it sort of reinforces the idea that it's a legitimate science because it convicted someone, it must be legitimate. But just because it was used to convict someone doesn't mean that it's scientifically valid. It didn't go through the same process of validation that, you know, other forms of scientific inquiry went through. So again, it's just like, why human beings are we making these same mistakes over and over again? And it's because we very often see what we want to see. And it's also so. as well, people will then, if, if one piece of uh, forensic evidence appears to be altered with or not 100%, you know, designed or, you know, studied the way it should have been, then there's people, there's so many cases of people who have actually committed crimes who are then going to have, uh, cases for appeals and, and everything else. It just gets so, so messy. Amanda, I'm not going to keep you any longer. I really appreciate your time. Um, oh. We'll have to do this again at some point. I want to talk with the Innocence Project and stuff because I know... That'd be great. I know through David that the amazing work uh, that you and, and, and that those guys do. So thank you for your time. Um, and hopefully we can do this again at some point down the line. Of course. Yeah, it was great talking to you. And thanks for helping me process what's going on in the world. <laughs>